Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's July 11th. 1405, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. If the soldiers of some new regime swept into town and killed my dad and turned me into a eunuch, I think the last thing I would want to do is join them. But a youthful Zhang Ha felt differently when Ming soldiers did exactly that at the end of the 14th century. And some years later, on this day, he had risen to become one of the Ming Emperor's right-hand men and was about to set sail on a voyage designed to impress and intimidate the region. And not just any voyage, a voyage in which he was leading a fleet of 255 ships. I know. He went on to command seven voyages, establishing China as Asia's strongest naval power in the 1400s. As often in this time, the accounts of the size and scale of the fleet are probably exaggerated to some extent, but we do have contemporary accounts from the likes of Marco Polo and even Batuta, who we mentioned in our episode on Timbuktu, that suggest that the fleet was extraordinarily vast. There were an estimated 28,000 people on board the ships, and that included obviously sailors, but soldiers, diplomats, scholars, doctors, astronomers, and translators. Yeah, and the preparations were so massive that they actually assembled a team of linguists at a foreign language institute that was established specially at Nanjing even before setting off. But on that question of whether there was exaggeration going on, you know, some of the ships, particularly the flagships, were said to have measured 400 feet long. And for comparison, Christopher Columbus's Santa Maria measured just 85 feet. What could this eunuch be compensating for? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But historians uh, who had originally been sceptical about these accounts eventually found in 1960 on the Yangtze riverfront, these buried wooden timbers that were 36 feet long that were originally a steering post beside this massive rudder that could only have been for a ship of a comparable size to those estimates that we had from the time. But the other thing that said about him was that he was a very tall man, that he was Mm. uh, seven foot tall with a deep booming voice. And a bit like describing the length of the boats, that sounds a bit unlikely for a (laughs) eunuch, that he was seven foot tall with a deep booming voice. But I can only imagine that is the effect of his personality and his command having such weight, which enabled him to command large groups of people, as we're describing on this day, and persuaded them almost to think of him as kind of a bigger deal, like literally physically a bigger deal than Mm. he actually was. Um, He'd really risen above his circumstances through a combination of being in the right place at the right time and also knowing how to leverage what he had. So he's a Muslim. His birth name was Maha, which is basically like the local version of Muhammad. He'd Mm. risen to prominence through relatively humble origins by having helped the emperor take the throne in a coup and essentially convincing them that their approach to boats was outdated because the the first emperor, uh, Hongwu, had a policy of vassal states, you know, Brunei, Cambodia, Korea, etc., and didn't want privateers making profit from shipping. They wanted it all to be done through state ships and therefore decreed that no ocean-going vessels should have more than three masts, a decree punishable by death. 
Mm. Although, I don't know how they caught you. If uh, you had six masks and they had three, you'd just be like, I'm out of here, <laughs> see you later. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he turned that around and said, no, we should be doing some pretty serious shipping and take advantage of this technology right now. Well, part of the reason why shipping had become a big deal was that this was the kind of end of the Mongols' control of China, at least for this period. They had controlled the silk routes throughout Central Asia from roughly 1250 to about 1350 and ruled much of China for most of that time as well. But then the empire started splintering into a number of smaller khanates, each ruled by a different khan, and that led to a certain deal of anarchy and warfare that led the traders who had previously been going overland via the Silk Routes to then shift to the sea. And that was why it became a hugely important thing for the early Ming dynasty, this incoming regime, to establish themselves as a sea power. Yeah, so while trade was obviously a big reason that the Ming Dynasty had accepted the need for shipping, this wasn't a commercial fleet. This was a treasure fleet. The fleet contained 62 treasure ships. And when I saw that, my mind immediately went to sort of Elizabethan pirates and privateers. But uh, this. I was thinking the Goonies. <laughs> but the treasure actually refers to the contents on board the ship. So these weren't missions to go out and gather loads of goodies, although they did end up obtaining lots of tributes in their travels. This was all about basically showing the region how wealthy China was. It was a little bit like Mansa Musa's 14th century voyage to Mecca from Malia. And so these ships were laden with China's treasures, albeit heavily guarded. I think that's probably the reason that they were taking thousands of soldiers along with them. And cartographers too. Because part of the other thing was the unsexy business of mapping the coastline. Yeah. I mean, you know, worth bearing in mind, if you're going to start doing more trading, whether or not this ship is a trading ship, you need better maps so that you can do that. So there was a lot of that going on, too. And for the Emperor Yonglo, this was basically an extortion enterprise. You know, this was for Yonglo to obtain recognition and gifts from other rulers that, you know, that distinguishes this fleet a little bit from some of the other um, fleets that were setting off around the same time, because these guys weren't going out to conquer or colonize, but they were kind of using their military force to show off, really, and make people in the region show them respect. And just the ships would have been influential because they had things that other nations didn't have. They had rudders, they had waterproof compartments, they could do repairs at sea. Yeah, and this enabled them to go much further than any of their rivals too. On this initial fleet, they visited modern-day Vietnam. I made it sound like they were sightseeing, but Siam, modern-day Thailand, Java and India. But future trips would go as far as Sri Lanka, Somalia and Kenya. And along the way, they did fulfil their mission, which was to awe and inspire other kingdoms into becoming tributary states of China. So on the fourth voyage, which was probably the most successful in terms of tributes, 17 kings sent emissaries back to China to sort of announce their intention to be tributary states. To, of the emperor. And they also received a bunch of what would have been novelties to China at the time, including ostriches and zebras and camels and ivory from the Swahili coasts. And they brought back giraffe, didn't they, from Africa? Yeah. And that's Noah's Ark stuff, isn't it? Coming back with the giraffe. You imagine that seeing that arrive in the distance? Well, totally. And it was regarded as a mythical creature called a kilin and was taken as proof of the mandate of heaven, which is kind of the Chinese equivalent of the divine right of kings for the Yonglo administration. So it was a really useful internal piece of propaganda as well. He could be like, well, look, my ships have gone out and brought back this mythical beast that proves that I am the right person to rule this empire. 
So you'd think with all these adventures that Zheng Ha had secured his place in the history books, but towards the end of his life, everything goes very quiet. And the reason for that is that he was deliberately expunged from the history by the bureaucrats who were in charge of the Chinese civil service. So Zheng Ha actually oversaw seven of these expeditions, and he's thought to have died on the last one. And the reason I say thought of is that we don't actually know. It seems strange when he must have been a very influential figure at the time. But what seems to have happened is that as soon as he died, the bureaucrats who ran China's civil service leapt into action to try and expunge him from the records. And the reason for that comes back to his status as a eunuch. So at the time, eunuchs made up this whole class of imperial servants. As we discussed in our episode, Right E for eunuchs, eunuchs were seen as being trustworthy because not only could they not seduce any of the high-status women, although some of them did, but also because they couldn't found their own dynasties and try and topple the emperor. So officially, they were the emperor's slaves, but in reality, they could be anything from whipping, bo- like literal whipping boys, to mm-hmm. powerful courtiers, though few reached the same status that Zheng Ha would. And the eunuchs who reached power in the court were often in bitter rivalry with these bureaucrats who had undergone, you know, China pioneered these civil service exams that were very difficult. So you could understand how the bureaucrats who had worked their way there would be sitting there thinking, I can't believe I'm sharing an office with a guy who just cut his own balls off and now he's in the palace in the same room as me. Well, this is the astonishing thing. And as soon as this uh, power of the eunuch class was smashed by the Confucian ministers after Yang Ha's death, then you really did have this era of Chinese seafaring come to a bit of an end and their ships were then left to rot in the harbours and the craftsmen are thought to have forgotten how to build such large ships. And then you had this new military threat emerging from the Mongols in the north and ministers just basically said, look, we don't have the resources to keep doing these uh, these expensive odysseys that really aren't actually conquering territory. What we need to do is spend that money on our land defences instead. So the eunuch system was officially abolished in 1924. But can you guess when the last imperial court eunuch died? I can't believe how often the history of eunuchs has come up on this show. I know. Like, we've been going for over a year and we've still not properly done an episode on World War II and here we are doing eunuchs again. What, what was the question? When was the last court imperial court eunuch? When did he die? Die. Oh, die. Uh, 2002. <sighs> I really wish you'd guessed an earlier date because it's going to be really underwhelming. Well, we've done eunuchs pretend, too often. Like, I've been surprised by the currency that. of eunuchs. All right, let's pretend. Uh, well, okay, let's pretend that you guessed 1949. No, you're wrong, Ollie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the correct answer was the last imperial eunuch, Sun Yao Ting, lived until yeah. December 1996. And he 1996, been, well, blow me down. He, He had an incredibly unfortunate career because his father castrated him at home when he was eight, weeks before the last emperor was deposed. Oh, no. Balls that up. (laughs) (laughs) Tomorrow. You know, maybe you could have multiple lives. But it was too much of a hot button issue to come out publicly. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors part of the ACAST Creator Network.